My name is Father Greg Peters, and I'm happy to be filling in for Father Steve. Father Steve. <laughs> He's my assisting priest. He fills in for me, so Father Scott. So Scott's my middle name. You would think I wouldn't make that mistake either. But anyway, so uh, it is good to see you all. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, my first Sunday here, uh, we had what's called the parable of the rich fool. Well, it's often called the parable of the rich fool. And if you remember from that gospel reading, it's because Jesus looked at the man. Remember, the man came to Jesus and said, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And he said, why are you bothering me? That's not my job, fool. <laughs> you know, again, like struggling with thinking of how does God call someone a fool. Um, but anyway, it's often called the parable of the rich young fool because, again, Jesus was telling this man, don't lay up treasures on earth for yourself. Don't worry about your inheritance. Instead, be rich toward God. That was the gospel reading from two weeks ago. And then last week, we, we had a kind of continuation of that to some extent, uh, talking about faith and that there's consequences to faith and faith works itself out in our life. But one of the ways it works itself out is do not be anxious. So again, two weeks ago, more or less, don't worry about the things of this world. Be rich toward God. Last week, remember the phrase, fear not in the gospel reading, right? Don't be anxious about things. Then also last week, related to the phrase in the gospel reading, stay dressed for action, right? Be ready. That was the point. Be ready because Jesus, God, is going to come back at any time. And so you don't want to be caught laying treasure up on earth for yourself. You want to be rich toward God. You don't want to be anxious about those things, but instead you want to be ready for this return of Jesus Christ. So being rich toward God leads to not being anxious, or at least it shouldn't lead us to being anxious if we're rich toward God. And that not being anxious, not having that anxiety, allows us to be ready, or at least to tend towards this readiness. But it, it, it's worth asking the question, but why the need to be ready at all? So Christine and I are kind of old-fashioned in the sense that we're on time, people. If you tell us dinner's going to start at 6, you better have your clothes on at 6 o'clock because we're going to be at your house. Now, if the food's not ready, we'll forgive you for that, but we're going to be on time. My boys, who both went through uh, Hutchinson Middle School, had a band teacher, Mr. Jordan, used to say, to be early is to be on time, to be on time is to be late, and to be late is unacceptable. And there's a point to that when it's a band, right? In order for everyone to rehearse, to be ready, to be warmed up, everyone needs to be in their seat, ready to go. Not five minutes past on time, but right on time. So in that sense, again, we're just kind of an old-fashioned family in this way. We've noticed that when we tell people what time we want to start, we need to pad it a little bit, right? If we really want to be eating dinner at 6... We'll tell certain people, I don't know, come over at 5.30 or so. And if they happen to be on time, we'll just, oh, great, good. We can have some time to talk before dinner's ready. But that's actually not the case most of the time. But again, well, why do we need to be ready? Well, in a practical sense, because your guests might get there and you're not. Right? That could be awkward, actually, in fact, embarrassing even. But, but why do we need to be ready? If we're rich toward God and we're not anxious... And it's, we're, we're being made ready, or we are ready. What's the point of all this? 
Well, tonight, today's gospel reading, rather, gives us the why, I think, of why we would want to be ready. Why we would want to even be motivated to be ready. The whole tenor of Jesus's earthly ministry is conducted in light of two things. One, his crucifixion and resurrection. So kind of hyphenate that crucifixion, resurrection, right? Throughout the duration of Jesus's ministry, either because we already know the end of the story. I mean, I imagine most of us just being raised at all in North America, you know, the story of Jesus, even if you weren't raised in the church, at least to some extent, but even in the gospels, right? Jesus oftentimes early and cryptically, but more clearly when the closer it gets, Jesus points himself towards Jerusalem. He knows what he's moving towards and what his purpose is. So again, the whole tenor of his earthly ministry is about the crucifixion and resurrection event. Everything is seen in light of that, right? So when we read the Gospels, no matter what Jesus is doing in the Gospels, we know that this is moving towards something. So that's the first uh, thing that we keep in mind when we think and read about Jesus' earthly ministry. But, but there's another one that we might not think of as often, but it's no less true. And that is the eschatological reality that one day all things will be recapitulated in Christ. That, that hope for the end times, that hope that one day God will take all of this brokenness and all of this sin and he'll recapitulate that in his son, Jesus Christ, and bring us into his kingdom and God's kingdom will be established on earth. That is just as much a part of Jesus's ministry as the crucifixion and resurrection. That in other words, no matter what Jesus is doing at any given time, we are thinking about this eschatological reality that one day God will make all things new again. And if we don't read the gospel with those eyes, we need to train ourselves to read the gospel with those eyes. Two lenses, if you will, in our gospel reading glasses, perhaps, would be a way to think about it. Now, you might think, well, what? what is this? Why do we have to think like this? Well, because, again, the scriptures, the gospels tell us to think like this. See, as 21st century Christians, we like our gospel to be packaged nicely. Right? We had a former student who became a good friend of ours. Um, when he would gift us things, they were always small, modest things because he was a student and didn't have a lot of money. But when the boys would have a birthday and Nathan gave a gift, it would be wrapped in newspaper or the, the weekly from Pasadena that he had picked up on his way home from seminary. And that was awesome, right? Because what do you do with wrapping paper anyway? You throw it away, you recycle it, right? So we kind of, but we like our packages to be somewhat neatly packaged, to be nice. And we like to think of Jesus as like hugging us while he shares his gospel of love and peace. But this crazy guy named John the Baptist had showed up before Jesus. And he is kind of crazy, right? He's wearing camel's hair. That might've been a thing in the first century. I have no idea. Like he might not have been the only one, right? Like, did you see that guy, John? He's wearing those new fashions. Pretty cool. Camel hair. Yeah, but the dude's eating locust and honey. That's a line too far. I'm not going to do that. That's like, I don't know, wearing Hollister and eating kale today or something like that. But I mean, the point is John the Baptist comes along and he shares the gospel. The first version of the gospel we ever hear in the gospels is from John the Baptist. And we heard it back in Luke chapter three, same gospel, gospel verses 16 and 17. Listen to this. John says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. Ooh. Yeah, that sounds nice. Water, 
cleanliness, that's great. Someone else is coming. Oh, is it the Messiah? This is exciting. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Oh, that sounds great. And fire. What? (laughs) But you're going to baptize with water, but this other guy's going to come. He's going to baptize me with the Holy Spirit and fire. Right? That doesn't sound pleasant. I'm not signing up for that. Right? So then it goes on. His winnowing fork is in his hand. This is the one who's coming, Jesus. We know that. His winning fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's a gospel message for you. Yeah, you like that? The gospel of love and peace. There it is. It's going to burn you. It's going to hurt. And Jesus is doing this for a purpose. He's going to toss us in the air and see what wheat there is and what chaff there is. But guess what? John the Baptist isn't making this up. He's the first prophet in about 400 years of silence, what we call the 400 years of silence or the intertestamental period. The last prophet, Malachi, had said something similar. This is John's message is simply an extension of the prophetic atmosphere at the end of our Old Testament. Micah says this, sorry, Malachi says this, chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, so that it will leave, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's the gospel. According to Malachi, John simply picks that up. But think about it. That's, that's eschatological language. God's going to burn you. He's going he's to separate the wheat from the chaff that, that like he's going he's to get down to the root. And not just the branches, but all the way down to the root. So again, we have to have that lens of apocalyptic imagery when it comes to the gospel. In other words, because of the apocalyptic nature of his mission, Jesus the Christ did not, in his own words, come to give peace on earth, but rather division. End quote. That's from today's gospel reading. Jesus says, I did not come to give peace on earth, but rather division. Well, what does this mean? I like my Jesus tame and nice. I like my gospel nicely packaged, and it's all about love. Just love everyone. That's what God wants, right? And Jesus says, no, the gospel brings division. But again, what does this mean? Well, recall the words of the prophet Simeon back in Luke chapter 2. Remember Simeon kicking around in the temple for decades waiting for the Messiah to come? When the Messiah finally comes, what does he say about Jesus? Quote, he will be a sign that generates opposition. Jesus isn't your peacemaker. Jesus isn't sure I'll look past your sins and love you unconditionally. Does he? Of course. But only after first coming and being a source of division. He generates opposition. I mean, I've met people with personalities like that. Matter of fact, I may have one on occasion where I generate opposition, right? But Jesus is warning his listeners and his followers. So there's these crowds that are kind of following him, listening to what he has to say. But then there's his followers, his disciples, those who have bought into Jesus as the Messiah. He's warning his listeners and his followers that life will not be easy. There will be divisions 
even in households and among family members. <gasps> now, I know you're going to have to stretch and work hard now to imagine division in your family. So go to your imaginary place and the rest of us will go to our real place and imagine division in our family. Right. And these are the results of people's response to Jesus's message about the kingdom of God. Like the joke about today's gospel is, yes, there's probably plenty of daughter-in-laws who don't like their mother-in-laws and vice versa. I have two sons, as you know, 18 and 14. When they marry, I really care who they marry because I'm going to have to live with those women for the rest of my life, right? So I kind of do care. I'd like to really get along with my daughters-in-law, Lord willing, one day, not just act like it, but really get along with them. But, But you know what? Jesus says that if you don't, surprise, that's the gospel. You should have expected it. There are divisions. The gospel causes opposition. Jesus does. The gospel causes divisions, even in households, even among family members. Right? And that's because people's response will be different to the gospel. Not just I accept it, but some people accept it and then they live it out in a particular way. Other people accept it and live it out differently. We have examples of this, albeit they're positive ones, in the reading from Hebrews. And I kind of wish we would have captured the last part of chapter 11 of Hebrews. We read some of that last week, and now we've skipped to 12. But nonetheless, this great cloud of witnesses, right? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that you go back to chapter 11 and read about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Enoch and others. They're positive examples for us that the gospel sometimes tells you to leave home And you do it. That's division. Right? Anyone who knows me, and you're probably getting to know me, I'm from Virginia, and I'm a proud Virginian. Right? God told me to leave Virginia. It's hard. I would love to be in Virginia. Someone just posted pictures the other day of the Blue Ridge Mountains. You know how nice they are in August? I mean, it's hot and humid and miserable in that way, but they they look beautiful. And I looked at them, and I longed for a home. But we have these examples That response to God causes division, right? And Jesus is telling us it's going to happen even among family members. Go figure. But there are also these days theological and cultural issues that divide families and even the church family. The gospel text today challenges our comfortable faith and our expectation that members of our faith communities will always agree with one another. Now, again, go to your imaginary place, because I'm sure at All Saints here, there's never been any division or tension in this church. I don't doubt it. I don't even know why Scott, Father Scott needs a sabbatical. This just seems superfluous, if you ask me, right? But I mean, theological and cultural issues divide our families, but they also divide the church. How do we respond to homelessness? How do we respond to the immigration issues? How do we respond to the rise of mental health issues? How do we respond to this and that and everything else? And you get 10 people in the room, you'll have 10 different answers. Three of them are ready to fight and seven of them don't think there's any reason to even talk about it anymore. That's division. It's there. It's not just in our families. It's in our church family. And again, Jesus says, that's what's going to happen. So we shouldn't be surprised by it. Remember what I said last week, if you were here, faith leads to action necessarily. And sometimes those actions will be divisive. 
Now, I'm not talking about because you're just a sinful and maybe not great person and you seek to cause division, but living out our faith will cause division. It has to. And again, I'm just thinking it has to because, well, Jesus said it. But John the Baptist had prophesied it and Malachi had warned us as well. So we're left today to wrestle with Jesus's announcement that divisions, even among family, are inevitable among his followers. Inevitable. Don't look at the divided church and lament for it. Look at the divided church and say, Jesus warned us about this. That doesn't mean we accept it. That doesn't mean we don't work to reestablish better unity in our families, among one another, in the church universal. But together, these texts today remind us of the work that we are called to do in response to these realities. Divisions are real, and how we respond is, of course, of the utmost importance. So whenever we encounter these divisions in our biological or close-knit families and friend groups, but also in culture and in the church, how we respond is what's important. If our response is just to lament that the church is not 100% united, well, duh. I mean, I hate to say it, but duh, Jesus said it wasn't going to be. We confess the unity of the church and we'll do so in a few minutes because we believe that the church is united in Christ and one day it'll actually look that way. But until it does, we have to pray and think about how we respond to these divisions. How will you respond as a mother, a father, a mother-in-law, a daughter-in-law, a son, a daughter, a friend, a sibling, etc., etc.? How will you respond to your family? How you, will you respond to these people in the pews? Don't look at them, but you can think about that person who's been driving you nuts. I know. Go to your imaginary place. Don't look at them. I'll just look at you all, <laughs> you know. And, uh, but think about it. It's in the church. But again, how we respond. But let us bear in mind this cloud of witnesses. Right? Let us bear in mind that God has provided us men and women whose lives of faith surround us even now and model for us how to live. The best thing about living in and out through the church year is because every saint we celebrate is meant to be an example for us. Read carefully Anglican Collects for Saints Days. We do not pray to these saints. We pray to God that we would model our lives after them and that they would become examples to us. So folks, there's going to be divisions. You and I aren't going to get along even though I don't know most of you all that well. But again, think about those you do know well in this parish. You're not going to get along. Parents of young children, I hate to say it, you're going to have conflict with your kids. It's going to happen. Dorothy knows about it, apparently. (laughs) Talk to her. (laughs) But again, how will we respond But let us bear in mind that though this is the gospel, the gospel also does and will, in fact, bring peace. So though divisions may be the reality that we live in now, though Jesus himself may be the one who brings opposition, we know that in the end, eschatologically, the gospel, God, will bring peace. So as we long for that day, may we do well to model our lives on those who have gone before us and do our best to love God. 
and our neighbor. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please stand and turn in your books of common prayer to page 127. And let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let us pray for the church and for the world, saying, hear our prayer. For the peace of the whole world and for the well-being and unity of the people of God. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. For Foley, our Archbishop, Keith, our Bishop, and for all the clergy and people of our diocese and congregation. Lord, in your mercy. For all those who proclaim the gospel at home and abroad, and for all who teach and disciple others. Lord, in your mercy. For our brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted for their faith. Lord, in your mercy. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, send down on those who hold public office, especially Donald, our president. Gavin, our governor, Robert, our mayor, the spirit of wisdom, charity, and justice, that with steadfast purpose they may faithfully serve in their offices to promote the well-being of all people. Lord, in your mercy. For those at home and abroad whose service puts them in the path of evil, violence, and sorrow, especially Andrew, Andy, Bryson, Connie, Lenny, Tommy, William and Ora, Matt, Andrew, 